0: We come now to the end of John chapter 2, so if you would please turn in your copy of God's Word to John chapter 2. This morning it'll be verses 23 through 25. We've all heard the old adage countless times, you have to see it to believe it. Perhaps you've seen the old cheesy used car commercials of a guy with a sloppy tie screaming into the camera. Our prices are so low, you have to see them to believe them. Come on down. And the prices are never as low as they claim to be, are they? Obviously, we use this statement when we are trying to describe something that is so fantastical or so amazing, so incredible, that whoever you're telling a story to or recounting something to, they're not going to be willing to believe what is being said without laying their eyes on it for themselves. We use this statement because we know that this is human nature, isn't it? by nature in our natural state we have a very difficult time believing without seeing we can find examples of plenty in scripture of this being human nature just think we really need to think no further than the unfortunately named doubting thomas after jesus was resurrected they were telling him of christ being resurrected and he said unless i see I will never believe. Jesus, in his patience and his grace, he allows Thomas to see and to believe, and then he tells him something so important. Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus confronts this superficial see it to believe it kind of belief. John, especially, will see in our time in this Gospel that he's writing with a laser focus on drawing out the meaning of true belief in his Gospel. He shows us that seeing does not necessarily equal believing, believing is seeing. It is possible, it is even common, to have a belief in Jesus that is not a saving belief. That might be a shocking statement to you this morning, and it is indeed a terrifying reality, and it leads us to ask, how do we differentiate shallow belief from saving belief? And perhaps even more importantly, how can we diagnose it in ourselves? How can we look within our own hearts to see, do I have shallow belief or have I believed savingly? In our time together this morning, we will see that shallow belief loves the benefits that Jesus offers, but not Jesus himself. Shallow belief is content with wondering at the signs and miracles and wonders without worshiping son. So if you would, please take your copy of God's word. Let's read our passage together and we will dig in this morning. John chapter 2 verses 23 through 25. This is the word of the one true and living God. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Let's pray. Lord, I confess that this is such a challenging text. Lord, I pray that you would help me preach this today well, accurately, by the Spirit, not as a club, but Lord, I pray that the sword of truth would be used to diagnose our hearts today. I pray that, Lord, that we wouldn't look at everyone else and judge everyone else by this text, but that we would judge our own hearts by this text. I pray that you empower both the preaching and the receiving of your word today for the good of your people. For the glory of Christ, we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. We begin this morning by considering the people's belief in the unbelievable. If you want to title this sermon, you could call it "Unbelievable Belief." The people's belief in the unbelievable. It's focused on verse twenty-four. But as we begin, let's remind ourselves of what we have seen so far in chapter 2. The chapter begins with Jesus performing this wonderful miracle, saving the reputation of a young man who's just entering into marriage by turning water into wine. John wrote in that passage that Jesus manifested His glory and His disciples believed in Him. Then Jesus leaves Cana to come to Jerusalem For Passover, we could call this another sign, because while he was in town, he does some housekeeping, if you will, flips over some houses, tables, clears out all those who would turn his father's house into a marketplace. And we come now to find the final three verses of this chapter. John is giving us a sort of summary of Jesus's time in Jerusalem during Passover but this also serves as a transition statement between what has happened here and then what Jesus will interact and say, with, uh, say to Nicodemus. When we get into chapter 3, we get into a very important passage, a very important interaction with Nicodemus. So this passage is going to serve as a transition. He's telling us that while he was in Jerusalem, many people believed in his name. As you know, the title of our series is So That You May Believe. I didn't come up with that. You know that that is the the theme verse in chapter 20, verse 31. That That is what John has stated as his purpose in this gospel. So then, whenever we read here that many people believed in his name, our natural reaction would probably be to say, praise God. That's wonderful. Many people believed in the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. That is John's purpose. That is why he's writing this. And now he's showing us this happening in real time. Throughout Jesus' ministry, he always attracts the many. He's always attracting a crowd. Thousands and thousands of people came to see Jesus. We know that just at one particular time, whenever Jesus fed the multitude, that there was at least 5,000 people there whenever He multiplied the bread and the fish. In our text, we know that Jesus had done many other signs because He tells us many people believed when they saw the signs and we only see at least one sign recorded for sure we could call the temple cleansing another sign, but there's only at least one miracle recorded water into wine, and that wasn't even at Passover. That was at Cana in Galilee. And so we know that many other miracles are taking place here. We just don't know what they are. John doesn't see that as an important detail, other only just to tell us that Jesus' fame now is growing. He's out on the scene, people are hearing about him. People are coming to know about this Jesus of Nazareth, and they're coming to know him as Waymaker, Miracle Worker, and they're believing in his name. People are seeing the signs and believing in his name. John is using a, a favorite word of his it's pistio in the original, it's believe. In our vernacular, this word appears 98 times in just John's gospel. 98 times. That is a lot of usage of the word pistio. It's the word that is in his theme statement in chapter 20, verse 31. So that you may pistio, that you may believe. The word points us to confidence, loyalty, and trust. Confidence. Loyalty and trust. One lexicon tells us that this word means to believe in something or to be convinced of something. It's such an important word here in John's Gospel and obviously in our faith. John writes in chapter 1 that those who believed and received and believed in Jesus' name That He gave those people the right to become the children of God. So that we know that belief is so important that it makes you become a child of God and you're not a child of God without belief. But we also know that James tells us that without faith it's impossible to to please God. Because whoever must draw near to Him must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. So, John's own gospel, the testimony of Scripture, certainly all of church history, tells us how important belief is, and that is why this is such a challenging text. Because we find people who believe. It doesn't say they pretended to believe. It says many people believed in His name. Well, if this is such an important part of being a Christian, if this is so foundational, why then does John record in the very next verse that Jesus didn't entrust himself to them? As we try to grasp what John is telling us here, I want to point us to John's phrasing. The ESV has it written this way, that many believed in his name, and here's an important word, When they saw the signs that he was doing. When they saw the signs. They believed when they saw. They believed when they saw. But earlier in chapter 2, what happened with the disciples? Verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. And his disciples saw it and believed. No. He manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. There's a slight difference there, isn't there? Jesus manifested his glory in his sign. And that is what's causing the disciples to believe in him. And here, many are seeing the signs. And they're believing in his name when they see the signs. I don't believe that John is accidentally saying it this way or he's being clumsy. I think John, as an inspired writer of scripture, knows what he's doing here. These people are practicing the see it to believe it kind of faith. They saw and they believed. Now, I do want to say as a side note that does not mean that everybody who saw a miracle and then believed that they had superficial faith, but at the very least, seeing and then believing is not a great start because Jesus said it. Have you seen and believed? Blessed are those who believe without seeing. This is what is often referred to as mental ascent. Mental ascent. It is the observation of certain events in front of their eyes It is coming to understand a certain set of propositions or truths in the mind and believing a certain set of facts with the mind. And that's as far as it goes. It stays in the brain. We have already mentioned that the crowd gathered around Jesus in chapter 6 We've already mentioned that There was this great multitude. I mean, here it serves as a great example of what's going on in that chapter, chapter six. Whenever Jesus has multiplied the fish and the loaves, everyone has had their full, their fill. It wasn't like a Costco sample Saturday where you just get a little nibble. They didn't get a nibble of bread and fish. They got a meal and they were stuffed and they went home full and there were leftovers So Jesus performs this absolutely incredible miracle with his little boy's lunch. Everyone saw this incredible sign. Jesus escapes to go be alone on the other side of the sea. The people track him down the next day. And then we have this little interaction that is so instructive for us here. They come to him and they ask him, what must we do to do the works of God? And Jesus responds, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. And they ask him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe in you? Are you serious? What sign do you do? Didn't you just eat your fill of the loaves and the fish? That's the sign. I already did one. You ate the sign. And here they are asking for another sign. And what they say is so important so that we may see the sign and believe in you. You see the difference here. They've already seen the incredible miracle and they're asking for another miracle. You know what they're doing is they're saying, we're hungry again. Can we get some more food? Can you do that with like some chorizo and eggs? We're hungry again. We'll talk more about that when they get there, when we get there. But there they were. They ate the original wonder bread. And they, it's not enough for them to believe. They want to see more in order to believe. They are convinced that this man can work miracles. But they're not convinced that he's the Messiah sent from God. Again, in chapter 7, verse 31, it says, Many of the people believed in him. And as after he, it says that, it's recorded this little conversation among themselves. They said, when the Christ appears. What? John just wrote, many of the people believed in him. And then their statement is, when the Christ appears, what do you mean? He's right there. John just wrote that you believed in him. When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? What did Paul say? The Jews Seek signs. Many believed in him, but they're asking for more. They want more signs. The many here in our text are surely no different. They believe in the unbelievable miracles this man is performing, but their belief rises with the excitement of the miracle, and it falls once it's over. Their belief doesn't ever turn to devotion. It doesn't produce anything beyond excitement. They admired the sign itself instead of turning to behold what the sign was pointing to. Namely, that this is the Christ. This is the Son of the living God. What did John the Baptist say? Behold, the miracle worker. Or did he say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. They admired the sign, but not the sun. Calvin puts it this way, quote, but as they did not understand the peculiar office of the Messiah, their faith was absurd because it was exclusively directed to the world and earthly things, end quote. They believed Jesus was a great miracle worker. How can you not? They saw it. But they didn't recognize him for who he was, Does that sound familiar? Chapter one, he came to his own and his own did not recognize him. This kind of faith is happy to wonder at the signs without worshiping the son. They believe, they believe that he can do awesome stuff. They believe that he can provide miraculously for them. But they're not trusting in him. This kind of faith is superficial. This kind of faith are seeking what Jesus gives their minds are stuck on the things of this world and as they are coming to Jesus they're coming to get their earthly needs met without a concern of their spiritual needs isn't this just like you and i i know that our tendency in reading the bible is to pick up the scriptures and use it as a lens to look at everyone else's life and say, it's not me, but I know who this is talking about. This is that person and this person. We put everybody else's lives under the microscope of Scripture, but rarely ever, if ever, do we put ourselves under that microscope to be examined by Scripture. Rarely, if ever, are we the villain Rarely, if ever, are we the ones with no faith. Rarely, if ever, are we the ones pursuing Jesus for just earthly, material needs. But we can always name who is. I know who that person is. It's not me, though. But this is one of the things that I love about Scripture, is that it diagnoses the human condition with pinpoint precision. The writer of Hebrews tells us in chapter 4 that the word of God is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, listen, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now listen to what he says in verse 13. And no creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him. The writer of Hebrews is talking about scripture, that the scriptures are living and active, that they are sharper than any two-edged sword. And then you would expect him to say, and no creature is hidden from its sight. But he says no one is hidden from his sight. We can hide ourselves from everyone in this room. You can hide your spiritual condition from your spouse. You can hide your spiritual condition from yourself. But you know who you won't hide it from? is the one to whom you are accountable to God. So as we read God's word, it discerns our thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. That's what it does. But when we harden our hearts and say, not me, but I know who this is, when it's always them, when it's always someone else, you know what we are effectively saying? That sword is useless here. It doesn't discern my heart. It discerns theirs. It doesn't pierce my soul and spirit. It does theirs. Beloved, let us resist that temptation because rest assured, every last one of us has that temptation. Resist that temptation. Instead, say along with the psalmist, search me and know me search me and know me see if there is a grievous way within me what ways in my own life am i like these early jews who chased jesus around for blessings you know how you can answer that question really quickly is to consider your prayer life not if you're praying what are you praying for Are you always coming to Jesus to say, gimme, 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 bless, 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 bless bless this, bless that, provide this, provide that? Or do you come to him bringing your greatest need, which is the condition of your spirit? Your greatest need at any given moment is your spiritual needs. Whether you got kicked out of your home and you lost your job. Your greatest moment in that hour is the condition of your heart. Which one is it for you this morning? We might think to hide our hearts from the Lord, but as we will see in this text, our hearts are laid bare before him. We have looked at the people's belief in the unbelievable. Our second heading is that the people's belief is unbelievable. Verse 24 but Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. I hope that we can feel the weight of this text this morning, because I did this week. There's some very significant wordplay going on here in the original The word is pistio. We said that a bit ago. Many people believed pistio in his name. The word entrust here is actually the exact same word. In the original, it would say many people pistio in his name, but Jesus on his part did not pistio himself to them. We could pretty safely translate this or paraphrase this. To say, many people believed in his name. Jesus, on his part, did not believe them. Many people believed in his name, but Jesus did not believe them. This text flies in the face of our 21st century easy believism. That it's so easy you just pray the prayer prayer, I prayed the prayer once and I'm saved. I went to youth camp. I raised my hand. I did this, that. I went to the altar. I'm saved. That's all you got to do is just say, I believe in Jesus. That's it. But this text is saying, but does Jesus believe you? Not just did you believe in Jesus, did Jesus believe you? In other words, is your faith genuine? You see, today we attract people, think to attract people to Jesus in saying, are you anxious? Are you broken? Are you depressed? Well, come to Jesus and he'll make you better. You know what we're saying is, are you hungry? Well, come to the miracle worker and he'll multiply some fish and some loaves. But what did John say? Is that the greatest need you need to behold in Christ is your need to have your sins taken away. So when we come to Jesus for anything but Jesus, we have the superficial faith that these people have. You know, it is entirely possible to come to Jesus to have a sin taken away, but not your sin taken away. How could I say that? Alcoholics Anonymous. You know what Alcoholics Anonymous want is to be freed from alcohol. Do you know what they don't want is to be freed from their sin. It is entirely possible to be want to be done with one sin, one sin that's particularly damaging. Perhaps I, you know, I just don't want to do this stuff anymore, but I still want this other sin. I still want all of this other stuff. And we come to Jesus For anything but him. And we think that we fool everyone. We might fool ourselves. But Jesus looks and he sees the heart. So what's really important is not just did you believe in Jesus? But did Jesus believe you? Because he searches your heart. How can we possibly explain this? You know, on the surface here, I'm convinced that on the surface, their belief looked real. I say that because, as I said a moment ago, John doesn't write that many people professed a false faith in him. He doesn't give you any indication that they didn't truly believe. As far as John is concerned, there were a lot of people who believed in Jesus. Hallelujah! We could almost hear John say, but if we could use our imagination, it would be as though Jesus is saying, Not so fast. Don't get excited by the masses. Don't get excited by the many. I see their hearts. On the surface, you and I, when we look at one another, when we look at people who we may now know have fallen away from the faith, we're convinced, I'm sold. I'm sold that I I believe that you believe. But Jesus sees our heart. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 13. I think this text, I want you to see this. It's a familiar text, but I want us to see it this morning. The parable of the weeds Down to verse 36. He explains this parable for us. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. His disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. And he answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The son of man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. What's happening here? This is the wheat and tares. You've heard you've probably heard of the wheat and the tares. You can go and look this up. Probably Cliff could instruct us all that wheat and tares look remarkably alike. It's called darnel. Darnel, sometimes referred to as mimic weed. As it is growing, it bears a striking resemblance to wheat. It looks just like wheat as it's growing. And who, how is it growing? Why did it get there? Did God plant it? It says that the evil one planted it in the field. What is this instructing us? The in Christianity, in our faith, perhaps even in churches, that God has His people, He has wheat, and there are tares among the people. And that you and I would not immediately recognize them. From the surface, that looks like wheat. That's what we would say. And we would say, look at this harvest of wheat. Praise the Lord. Many have believed in His name. But the farmer knows what's in his field and he's allowing them to grow. There, his workers ask, should we go take them out? He says, no, leave them until judgment day. And on judgment day, it will be laid bare. Who was what? Were you a wheat or were you a tare? Which one are you? We can't put our confidence in what other people think. Did other people think I'm a Christian? Because you can be really, really good at playing the part. Pastors have fallen away from the faith. Church leaders, committee members, worship leaders, the most faithful church members who tithed on the regular. You know who this is explaining? It's Judas. We think of Judas and we think of the obvious liar, but at the Last Supper, when Jesus said, One of you is going to betray me, you know what doesn't happen? The disciples don't look at Judas and say, It's definitely you. They're like, Well, who is it, Lord? They had no idea. Judas was there with them at the table. He was there with them, listening to the teaching, watching the miracles. He heard the best sermons ever. He was there until the very end when he proved who he really is. You know who was fooled? Is everyone except for God. Look up at the top of chapter 3 or 13 of Matthew. Who are these people look at verse three? A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path. Birds came and devoured them. Others fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil. Immediately, they sprang up since they had no depths of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold and so on. Go down to verse 20. He's explaining the parable. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfaithful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it, and he bears fruit. These are the people that John is talking about. Soils 2 and 3, they received it, One of them even sprang up with joy and excitement. Friends, these are the things you and I would see and praise the Lord for. We would say, look how passionate they are about the Lord. But God looks at the heart. He sees what the soil is. He sees that there are no roots there. He sees the weeds that grow in our lives, that grow and they are unkempt. The garden of our heart that has weeds growing. He says the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. Friends, the cares of this world are the cares of this world, things that this world cares about. Good things. How are my bills going to be paid? How are we going to put food on the table? How are we going to do that? Is a care of the world. And what did Jesus tell us? Don't worry about what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink or what you're going to wear. Your Father knows. Seek first the kingdom and those cares and concerns and the deceitfulness of riches. Deceitfulness, you know what that word means? Intentionally deceiving. You know what that means? We could be deceived that we are we are susceptible to being deceived by riches. These things grow and they choke out the word and they prove that you didn't come to Jesus for Jesus. You came to Christ for something else. Even if you lasted for a while, that's what he says. It lasted for a while. It lasted for a while and then it proved there was nothing there all along. We can see the external, you and I. We can make a determination. We can look at fruit. But ultimately, you and I cannot see the heart. Only God can. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And it's because of the omniscience of our Lord that he knew which soil these people had in their hearts. He knew you're a stony ground here. He knew your heart is full of weeds. The deceitfulness of riches and the cares of this world will choke out the word. He knew which soil was there. As A.W. Pink, or I'm sorry, Augustine said it, the artificer knew what was in his own work better than the work knew what was in itself. Our chief shepherd knows which are the sheep of his pasture. So then what is saving faith? How? I mean, if I can believe and it can be a fake belief, well, how do I know if I'm really believing? If a false belief can look like a real belief. What does saving faith look like? Saving faith from a regenerate heart graduates beyond being amazed at the sign to see the glory of the one that the sign is pointing to, just as the disciples did in verse 11 of chapter 2. And you can turn back to John, by the way. Just as they did. They saw His glory. That's why they believed It wasn't just that he could turn water to wine. It was that he's the son of God. The reformers spoke of three aspects of saving faith. Three different really fancy Latin terms. But an easier way to say it is knowledge, assent and trust. These are three aspects of saving faith. Knowledge, assent and trust. Knowledge is speaking to the content of what is believed. In other words, to believe in Jesus, you have to come to know about the work of Jesus. That Jesus was born of a virgin, that he walked this earth, that he was fully God, fully man. You have to come to know of his life and his ministry, his purpose of taking on flesh and what he did on the cross. But this isn't enough, is it? it's not enough to believe that you can know a lot about the Christian faith while not believing that any of it is true. And that's why you need assent knowledge and then assent. This is meaning that you come to believe that these things are true. I have come to know that he is he lived and I believe that he actually lived. You believe that the Bible is not just a work of fiction, You believe that the person of Jesus and his work isn't a myth, but this is truth. You can believe a lot about rich, wonderful theology. But if this is as far as you get, you do not have saving faith. You can have the thickest systematic theology books. You can go to every conference there is. You can listen to sermons 24 7. But if this is as far as you go, you do not have saving faith. You know what this kind of faith is? It's the kind of faith that demons have. James tells us in James 2.19, you believe that God is one and you do well, even the demons believe and they shudder. Shouldn't we shudder if we believe that God is real? Demons have come to know theological truth. And they have wonderful theology. They could tell you about justification. They could communicate these things to you. But are demons saved? Of course not. This is the kind of faith that the people in our passage today have. They believe a set of facts and truths and propositions. And that is as far as it's gone. When Jesus looked into their hearts... He didn't find belief. He found an evil, unbelieving heart that wanted to see more miracles. He saw in them the same kind of belief that demons have, so he didn't believe their belief. The people around believed it, but Jesus saw the heart. Saving faith requires a third crucial element, trust. It is not enough to merely come to know historical facts about Jesus or to even believe that Jesus is real and that he really did die on the cross. You must come to trust that he died for you. you know what is involved in that? Coming to know and believe and trust what the Bible says about you. That you're a sinner. That you are depraved. That you're wicked that you are condemned, that you're under the wrath of God, if not for Jesus. Because otherwise, how will you trust in Jesus when you know not that you need to trust in Him? But this is trusting in Him. It is trusting that when He was on the cross, when He was bleeding and dying and breathing His last breath, that it was your sin on His shoulders, on that cross. That as the Father poured out the wrath of God on His own Son, that you contributed to that wrath. You were part of the reason why that cup is so full. But that He did it, and He did it for you. That you have trusted that. That you have trusted that you cannot save yourself That you cannot earn His love. That you cannot do good enough. That nothing in this world is as good as having Jesus. That you have trusted in these things. I used to fancy myself a bit of a thrill seeker. But I came to learn that I like the idea of thrill seeking. But I don't actually like to seek thrills. I had some friends once upon a time who were gonna go skydiving. We had made this wonderful plan. We had looked up these videos, and I was so excited until I heard about the part where you have to get on the plane. We had planned this trip. I was so excited. I was saving money. I was t- pretending that I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go. All the while, I'm trying to work up the courage, but my heart and better sense said no. I loved the idea. It sounded like a lot of fun. But practically speaking, I don't want to jump out of a plane. I never want to jump out of a plane. I don't want to do that. I will watch and I will hear of other people's wonderful stories about how safe it is and how it's the most exhilarating thing you will ever do. Great. I'm so happy for you. I came to learn about skydiving. I learned that it exists. I learned that it's moderately affordable. I learned that you have a trainer who will be attached to you, that you'll wear a helmet that will surely save you from plummeting to your death. I learned how safe it is, how many jumps have gone without a single problem. I learned about how much fun it is, and I believed what they said is true. I believed my friends when they said they had so much fun and that I should have gone. I believed that they were all still alive after the jump. I believed the pictures. I believed it all. But I do not trust jumping out of a plane. Thus, I have never purchased a ticket. I have never driven to the skydiving place. I've never put on the equipment. I've never gotten on the plane. And I've never jumped out of the plane. So it is with the Christian faith. A person can hear the Gospel. They can hear the work of Christ on the cross. They can hear testimonies of how God has completely changed all of these people's lives. And they can even come to believe that all of this is true. They can even come to church. But if that's as far as it ever goes, this is not saving faith. You must go beyond simply hearing and believing that something is true to placing your trust in the gospel and you know something about how this works is that it's not a one-time event. Evidence that you have done it once is that you continue to do it today. Further, evidence that you have done it once and that it's continuing today is the life that you are produ- the fruit that your life is producing growing in Christ's likeness that is evidence that you have saving faith it's not just hearing it's not just believing it's jumping out of the plane knowing that Christ will get you to the to back to ground safely it's displayed really well by Peter in chapter 6 after everyone said that we want to see another sign so that we can believe in you, They all leave after Jesus says some really hard things to them. Jesus turns to his disciples and asks if they want to leave too. Peter says on behalf of the group, Lord, to whom shall we go? That's trust. You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Not just way maker, miracle worker. We have come to believe that you are the Holy One of God. As Christ looks into your heart, what kind of belief does he see there? Does he see the word being choked out by the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches? Does he see a stony ground in your heart? Does he see a desire for more of the things of this world than of Christ? Which one is it? I have two reflections on this passage and then we'll close. Number one, he sees our heart. I believe that one of the most fearful truths to come to understand about God from the scriptures is that God sees your heart. If you really think about that, the things that you think about, the things that you desire sinfully, And knowing that God sees it all, this makes you tremble. When God looks into your heart, apart from Christ, you know what he sees? Jeremiah 17, he sees that the heart is deceitful above all things. He sees that it is desperately sick and that no one can understand it. The word deceitful, again, means intentionally deceiving. In other words, your own heart is intentionally deceptive. We tell people to follow your heart. No, don't ever follow your heart. Don't ever tell someone that because your heart is wicked and deceitful. It will lie to you, it's actively engaged in deception. It will convince you that everything is fine, that everything's okay, that you can get away with it. Then no one sees. But you know who sees? Do you know who I stand before? Do you know who you stand before? With our hearts laid bare is God Almighty and He sees us with holy, perfect eyes. He sees all of it. The Scriptures tell us, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. You can lie to yourself and you can lie to everyone. But you can't lie to God. What does he see when he looks into your heart? Does he find that you keep bringing in the tables that he flipped over and the money changers? Does he see that you've been trusting in dead religion? Does he see that your stone water jars are empty? Does he see a superficial belief that seeks what you can get from God and God, not God himself? Rest assured, friends, he sees it all. Our text tells us that He knows all people and doesn't need anyone to bear witness about man. You know what that means? He doesn't need you to tell Him about you. He knows you better than you. That is terrifying. He knows us better than ourselves. While one of the most fearful truths to come to understand from Scripture is that God sees your heart. This is at the same time the beauty of the gospel. Because the reality is that when he looks at my heart, when he looks at your heart, he finds selfishness, he finds pride, he finds arrogance, he finds wickedness, he finds bitterness, he finds lust, greed, you name it, he finds it in your heart and my heart. He saw a heart in rebellion against him. Yet, while he saw that, Christ died for us. This is unfathomable love. To be fully known, and to be fully known and fully unlovable and unlovely, yet loved totally and completely. No one needed to explain to Jesus what was wrong with man. What is in man's heart? He knew man's heart is deceitful. He knew the depths of our depravity. And still he chose to bear the full weight of that sin on the cross in our place. Rest assured, beloved, if you are in Christ, there is nothing in your life that can make God stop loving. There is nothing you could confess to Him in prayer that would make Him rethink your place in His family. There are no black sheep in the family of God. There are only sheep that have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. If you are in Christ, you are so totally and completely and perfectly loved right now as you will ever do you know why because you're standing in Christ and when he looks at you he sees no longer the wickedness he sees what his son did and his son knew who you were he knew it you can't hide it so if you've never trusted in this the scandal of the gospel the scandalous love of God for sinners if you've never trusted in it, do it today. Believe upon Him. Not just that these things are true, but that it's true for you. That it's true for you that when you go to lunch or you're taking a nap today or you wake up on Monday morning, that you are so completely covered in the love of God. Because He knows who you are. He knows everything about you. And at the same time, beloved, let's keep in mind that He offers us a new heart. Evidence that you have come to trust in this love of God. Evidence that you have come to trust in this love that you could never spurn away is that you're growing because of that love. That that love waters the garden of your heart and doesn't say, great, I can get away with it. Great, it's no big deal. But it says, well, if your love is that great, search me and know me. Remove the wickedness that's in my heart and make me more like the Son. Let's stand. Father, we thank You that You know everything. There's nothing that we can hide from You. And yet, if we are in Christ, You love us completely, thoroughly, and totally. Help us, Lord, to grow in this understanding. Help us, Lord, to be changed by this love. And help us to trust in Christ, in Christ alone, that there would be no superficial belief left in us, but that we would believe savingly in the name above all names, the name of Jesus Christ.